hear about them all the time and no doubt some of you listening may have been stalked or have even stalked another. Why do people do this? What can be done about it? Tonight I'll go into some stalking cases and try and get some answers. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight is a show about stalking, what it is, why it happens, and bring you a couple of cases from around the world. Now, before all that, though, I just want to ask you if you could spend a couple of minutes to vote for True Crime Island in the Australian Podcast Awards popular category. Go to australianpodcastawards.com and register to vote. You've got 10 votes to spread around to whoever you want. Not only vote for the island, but vote for my mate's bloody murder, mall, good nightmare and evidence locker. We're in uh, about third place again this week as I write, and we're going to need at least, I reckon, another thousand or so votes to get right up there and take out the title. So I know there's more than that listening, so please go to the AustralianPodcastAwards.com. There are links on my Twitter and Facebook or email me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com if you have any issues. Let's get me up there shouting boom-fucker-lunga on behalf of all you islanders. So, back to the show. What is stalking? So, <laughs> stalking is unwanted or repeated surveillance by someone or even a group of people towards another person. It can describe people who pester and harass others. It is when someone inflicts upon another repeated unwanted intrusions and communications. Stalking can be defined as willful and repeated following, watching and or harassing of another person and doesn't involve one act. Rather, stalking is a series of actions that occur over a period of time. Now, stalking has been going on since the dawn of time, but in today's world where everyone is interconnected, we can travel freely and easily, stalking has taken on a whole new dimension. I mean, whenever some stalking cases is in the news, we'll always hear how the victim was bombarded with unwanted calls and text, maybe their social media gets hacked and all their messages are read or even deleted, There's so many ways in which modern technology makes stalking so much easier and terrifying. Now, I got this bit from victimsofcrime.org, their stalking resource center. Now, some things stalkers do. They follow you and show up wherever you are, send unwanted gifts, letters, cards or emails, damage your home, car or other property, monitor your phone calls or computer use, 
use technology like hidden cameras or GPS systems to track where you go, drive or hang out at your home, school or work, threaten to hurt you, your family, friends or pets, find out about you by using public records or online search services, hiring investigators, going through your garbage or contacting friends, family, neighbours or co-workers. Now, the garbage thing will come up in one of the cases today. Posting information or spreading rumours about you on the internet, in a public place or by word of mouth and other actions that control, track or frighten you. Now, I'm sure we've all Googled someone to find out more about them. Maybe a potential date or something like that. And that's probably a good idea if you've just hooked up with someone from Tinder or whatever. Just in, <laughs> You've got to check because just in case they're a fucking psychopath that's just got out of the monkey house, which is what the Thai people call jail, usually it stops there. But some cases, an innocent Google can escalate over time into scenarios like I just read out And it can even escalate further into violence and sometimes the death of the stalking victim. Now, I found a few stats on stalking from the John Carroll University in Ohio. Now, look, I'll read these out. And as all things, stalking in different parts of the world will have different stats. But we've got to start somewhere. So let's have a look at this. Persons aged 18 to 24 years experience the highest rate of stalking. One in six women and one in 19 men in the United States have experienced stalking during their lifetime. During a 12-month period, an estimated 14 in every 1,000 persons aged 18 or older were victims of stalking. 13% of college women were stalked during one six- to nine-month period. About 43% of victims stated that police were contacted at least once regarding the stalking. Male and female stalking victimizations were equally likely to be reported to the police. Approximately one in four stalking victims reported some, some form of cyber stalking such as email or instant messaging. Electronic monitoring was used to stalk 1 in 13 victims. Now, that's GPS monitoring, bugs, phone tapping, or video. Now, not everyone's going to get into phone tapping, but you, or, or even bugs, but GPS monitoring or video, a lot easier. 46% of stalking victims felt fear of not knowing what would happen next. of female victims of stalking were stalked by a current or former intimate partner. Now, they're ones that we always hear in the news. 31% of women who are stalked by an intimate partner are sexually assaulted by that partner. Now, the average duration of stalking is 1.8 years. Now, I can imagine 1.8 weeks, 1.8 months is a lot, 1.8 years, and it does go a lot longer in some cases. That's just absolutely terrifying. 80% of campus stalking victims knew their stalker. Three in 10 victims reported being injured emotionally or psychologically from being stalked. Of course they do. From the research I've done, and it was in those stats, men and women 
are equally likely to report being stalked. However, as you'll see in the cases I'll talk about tonight, reporting to police can sometimes make absolutely no difference to whether the stalking continues or not. Now, stalking is such a broad term, really, with different relationships between the stalker and the victim. We all know about the celebrity stalker that has probably never met the person they're stalking. There's the ex-partner stalker, the one that can't let go. There's the ex, what I call the ex-date or acquaintance stalker, someone who is stalking their victim they may have met maybe once or have had some other casual relationship such as a co-worker, neighbour, somebody off Tinder or something. There's also the what you might call the serial killer stalker that is surveilling their target with the intention of doing them great harm or, as in the case of serial killers, even death. So first up, this is a case in the stalking murder of Shiori Ino, a Japanese college student. Now, before I get into this case, Japan isn't like any Western country like the UK, Australia, Canada or even the US of A. Over there, things are really fucked up concerning stalking. They've had an increase in reported stalking cases of over tenfold over the last decade. They do have quite a a severe gender bias over there, which accentuates issues such as men believing they own women, that they are their property. So let's get back to Shiori Ino, the college student from Okagawa that was murdered by her stalker. Shiori was 20 years old when she met 26-year-old massage parlour operator Kazuhito Komatsu. Now, Kazuhito, I'll call him Kaz, told Shiori that he was actually 23 years old and that he was an entrepreneur dealing in real estate, luxury cars and precious metals. They dated a few times, but obviously Shiori wasn't that into him. But this didn't deter Kaz as he started to buy her Louis Vuitton handbags, Gucci suits and all this other expensive shit, which he gave her in quite public situations. Now, Shiori tried to refuse the gifts, but this would set Kaz off who would scream abuse at her. So this is only after a few dates and it's in public. You can imagine how awkward Shiori felt. Kaz would call her later, apologise and he'd say never do it again. Kazuhito then started calling Shiori at home even though she'd never given him her home number. So it looks like even at this early stage Shiori is trying to ghost him but he's able to find out her home phone number. Shiori told him she was breaking up with him, but Kaz threatened her. So at this point, she kept seeing him. By late March, she was extremely worried for her life and she reached out to friends for help. A few days later, she wrote a will, called Kazuhito and told him that the relationship was again finished. But then Kaz threatened not only her, but now he threatened her family, singling out a little brother who was in primary school. Ten weeks later, 
on June the 14th, 1999, she arranged to meet Kaz at a cafe. And this time she said that this is the final time she was breaking up with him. Well, this pissed off Kaz so much that he grabbed his brother Takeshi and another goon, went to Shiori's family home, and once they were there, they threatened Shiori and her mum, yelling out wild accusations about how they could frame them for crimes Kaz had actually committed himself. When Shiori's father got home, he told the three intruders to get the fuck out of his house and to take all the fucking gifts with them. Actually, I would have said that, but he was probably a little bit more polite and told them to please go and take their stuff. Anyway, the three dickheads took off saying she could keep all the expensive shit she'd been given over the previous couple of months. Now, she already wanted to go to the police, and during the home invasion, she'd secretly recorded audio of the whole thing. Good on you, Shiori. So... Here she has Kazuhito, his stupid brother and their other mate, all on audio, screaming out and threatening Shiori and her family. She presents this to police, but other than one young noob officer that was concerned, the other officers refused to do anything, saying she had no case. Fuck's sake on this police in action thing. You'll find not only this is happening in this case, but in quite a lot of cases all over the world. Later that day, June 15, the Eno family got a call from a dude called Tanaka who requested all the gifts be returned to Kazuhito. I guess Kaz needed to sell them as he wasn't as wealthy as he was making out or it was some sort of menial punishment he was trying to dish out with Shiori. Obviously, it was just another connection. The next day, the 16th of June, Shiori again went to the police, this time with her parents. The cops there, these fucking useless pricks, told her again that they're not going to take any action because it was all Shiori's fault for breaking up with a smitten suitor after she'd accepted all his expensive gifts. I mean, what the fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. See, I would have gone off at the fucking cops, but Japanese culture is a lot politer. The family probably just bowed and went, okay, okay. So the cops have fobbed them off to a free legal clinic run by the local Chamber of Commerce. Here, a fucking lawyer wondered what their problem was, telling them, and I quote, but she had lots of things brought for her, right? I mean, fuck's sake, what is wrong with these people? All night, the family phone would ring and when they picked it up, there would be silence on the other end and this would continue for months. So the next day, the 17th of June, Kaz calls Shiori again. He demands that she gets back with him, but Shiori tells him that she's been to the police and to piss off. Well, again, probably not piss off, but you know, Stay away. Crazy man Kaz is furious that she's gone to the cops and hangs up. Four days later on the 21st of June, Shiori calls a courier and gets all the shit that Kaz had given her and gets it shipped back to him. The next day, the 22nd, Kaz calls his mate, 33-year-old Yoshifumi Kubota. Now, 
you got to laugh. Kaz's last name is Komatsu, and his mate is Kubota, both are manufacturers of tractors and heavy machinery. Anyway, Kaz calls Kubota and tells him he's willing to pay 20 million yen to have Shiori killed. That's about 180,000 US dollars, or quarter of a million Aussie dollars. Not sure how many bollars that is, though I could ask Barney. Kubota agrees and hires a couple of goons called Akira Kawakami and Yoshitaka Ito, while Kaz takes off to Okinawa on July the 5th to create an alibi. All the while, Shiori's home is getting these silent calls, harassment, threats, and Kubota and his goons are putting up posters around the neighbourhood with slanderous accusations about Shiori and her father. They even send these to her father's workplace. The family continue to gather evidence against Kaz, but when they try to press libel charges, senior police block it as they didn't want more open and unresolved cases on their books. Now, this is looking a bit like a Yakuza being in bed with the police, maybe. I mean, Kaz could have been involved somehow with organised crime, especially running the massage parlours. This goes on for months, all the while Kubota and his goons Ito and Kawakami are watching Shiori's every move, planning her murder. Eventually, on the 26th of October 1999, Shiori leaves home for Okagawa Station to attend her classes. Ito, watching from a car, tips off Kawakami, who drives Kubota to the train station. As Shiori gets off a bike, Kubota lunged at her, stabbing her in the side. As she turned, he then stabbed her in the heart. Shiori was dead before an ambulance could get her to hospital. So when this hits the news, the police freak out a bit and start to portray Shiori as a gold-digging slut who asked for it and the media runs with this shit. No arrests are made. In fact, the police seem to be not investigating the case at all until the hero of this story, if there ever could be one, arrives in the form of journalist Kayoshi Shimizu, who started to investigate the case for himself. When he publishes his story, including a photo of Kaz, suddenly the fucking police arrest Kubota on the 19th of December and Takeshi, Kawakami and Ito on the 20th. Kaz was still on the run and fled to Sapporo, Hokkaido. Kayoshi, the reporter, tracked him to Sapporo, but before he could find him, Kazuhito's body was found in a lake at Teshikaga. A suicide note was found in his hotel room, indicating he was going to kill himself as soon as he knew Shiori was dead. So because of this, a lot of police got a new one ripped for him over this, but one good thing came out of it. A stalker regulation law took effect in November 2000. Kubota was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Kawakami and Ido were both sentenced to 15 years in prison. Takeshi was sentenced to life imprisonment. He did appeal, but the Supreme Court upheld his original sentence. So there you go. How often do we hear in stalking cases that end in murder that the police were informed but did very little about it. 
most places have some sort of legislation in regards to stalking. But that also needs to be backed up with proper police training and even proper counselling services for the stalkers themselves. There's no point putting someone on a restraining order if it's not properly policed and there's no point putting someone in jail for a few years if they get out with any, without any counselling. Okay, so now I want to talk to you about another shocking case, this time from the UK. This is the story of Dr. Jan Falkowski and Deborah Pemberton. Now, this will blow your brain when you hear about what went on. And for the UK listeners, you probably remember this case as it was huge in the media. In late 2002, Jan and Debbie were engaged to be married. Debbie was a financial analyst and Jan was a top psychiatrist and powerboat world champion. The engagement was publicised in a National Health Service magazine that was available to patients. They both loved the powerboat racing scene and they would spend times at Yarn's boat moored at Limehouse Marina, East London, his house in Epsom, Surrey and Debbie's flat in Poole, Dorset. And they'd usually be there on the weekends. It's October 2002. Jan and Debbie were on their way to Windermere for a boat event. A caller on Debbie's mobile asked for her initial, then hung up. She didn't think too much about it. Later that night, they got strange, non-threatening text messages. Then the tone changed. Debbie got a call from a male voice saying, We're going to get you. The silent calls and text messages continued but they seemed to be threatening towards Debbie rather than Jan. He got one saying, You never know how much I feel for you in the last four years. The couple went to Poole Police Station, but they didn't really take it too seriously. Debbie was now getting tens of text messages daily, all threatening her to leave Jan or harm would come to her. Jan also was getting messages advising him to leave Debbie. At one stage, a note was pushed under Debbie's door, which was engineered to look like Jan was meeting his lover later. It read, Jan, call me tonight, lover. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Please don't send nasty emails about my... uh, My accent, okay, please. I'm doing the best I can. I'm the only one here, all right? Anyway, a text message to Debbie mentioned the name of Yarn's 27-foot cruiser, Mad Pals. It said, The boat is not for you. A few nights later, as they walked towards the boat, they noticed the lights were already on. This time, they went to Limehouse Police, but again, they weren't taken seriously and just told to change their phone numbers. At this stage, and I advise anyone out there to do this, they logged every call and text that they received so that they could then take it to police to show them the extent of the harassment and stalking. Soon, not only Jan and Debbie were getting silent calls and threatening texts, their parents and siblings were getting them as well. Now, you may think that the police could just find the number of the text messages, but back then, things were a little different. 
Not only were mobile phones easy to obtain without any ID, we know them as burner phones, but you could send anonymous text messages from a public phone box. Yes, I can hear a few of you out there going, hey, that's a great little idea. Anyway, it seemed as though this mysterious stalker knew every move Jan and Debbie were taking. The stalker would insert references to things they'd done, were planning, or places they were. Now, this is fucking creepy. From one call that Jan's mum got, the caller sounded like a Spanish woman. But both Jan and Debbie couldn't think of any Spanish women they knew or had had contact with. A few weeks after the lights on the boat event, they returned to the boat to find all the gas taps on the stove were on and Jan quickly shut them off while yelling for Debbie to get the fuck out and don't touch any electrical switches. This was reported to police who now started to take the stalking more seriously but not enough to check local CCTV footage. Now, the stalker had worked out Yarns and Debbie's routine and delighted in telling them so. One text message was found to come from the train station that Debbie was waiting for her train at, so the stalker was actually watching her. So months into the stalking, there's no let-up. Debbie, as I said, was a financial analyst, even had her work contacted when the stalker found out about Debenhams being involved in a multi-million pound takeover. The stalker phoned the chief executive of Debbie's work, saying that she had leaked sensitive financial information to the press. Wow, to have this thing in your own life is one thing. For it to spread to family and friends is another level. But to then have it reach into your workplace is a whole nother level of scumbaggery. Especially in Debbie's line of work where millions, if not billions of dollars were at stake. Now, and where the fuck did you get the CEO's phone number from? In January 2003, so this is about four months into the stalking, police advised Jan and Debbie to move to a safe house and not to tell anyone not even their family. A romantic weekend to Brussels that they had only discussed on the boat and with no one else or anywhere else, the stalker knew about it after they received a text saying, you can't run away for the weekend. They were sure the boat was bugged, but sweeps of all their premises and the boat turned up nothing, nada. Some of the other texts Debbie received as her wedding day approached, were, (laughs) these are awful, fuck off you tart, SAS man will send you to heaven. Another one, two weeks from today, you'll be dead, prepare your funeral, not your wedding. Another one, bang, 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 that's all you deserve, fucking Deborah tart, your last days are counted up. Another one is, you'll be burnt down in your wedding dress. Now, when Debbie was thinking of getting her teeth whitened, she soon got a text saying, Deborah Tart fancied whitening her teeth. Her mouth could burn. And another one, time's running out, gunman paid and ready to go. Another one was, you be dead. Now, this would end up being the name of a movie or television movie 
thing about this case. You can search it on YouTube. Jan, he got plenty of messages as well, with one referencing his children from another marriage, which said, do you want them to have the wickedness of stepmothers? Look, I could go on and on with these crazy text messages, but let's get on with the story because it gets friggin' weird. The stalker contacted the venue of the wedding reception and tried to cancel it. When that failed, she got the chef's phone number and told her she was going to poison the food. Fuck's sake, this woman is a psycho. Now, by May 2003, the strain on Jan and Debbie's relationship had become intense. Jan started seeing a young PR girl, Bethan Ansel, that he'd met in a bar. Soon, they were having an affair. Bethan started to get calls now at her work, and on one occasion when she and Jan were staying together, there was a crashing sound outside in the yard. Jan investigated to find the bin was tipped over and rubbish was everywhere. He thought it must be a fox. When there was a bomb threat at a powerboat race meet, that almost caused the whole marina to nearly be evacuated. So the police devised a plan. The wedding had been planned for September the 6th, 2003, but a few weeks earlier, after nearly a year of constant harassment from the stalker in every aspect of their lives, Jan and Debbie decided to call it off. Police said, hang on a minute. They knew the stalker would probably be very active on the wedding day. They already knew that the stalker was using random public phone boxes in the pool area. If they went ahead with, say, a fake marriage and they tried to monitor as many public phone boxes as they could, then there was a chance they could catch the stalker in the act. On the day before the wedding, the chef at the reception gets a text and it says, Please get Jan to call off the wedding 6903. Many will be dead if they go ahead. This was good as the stalker had no idea the wedding was cancelled and there was obviously going to be no reception. So, on the day of the 6th, instead of wearing her wedding dress, Debbie is sitting with family and detectives while they wait for the inevitable text to come in. And did they come in? As there were hundreds of public phone boxes in the pool area that had been used by the stalker previously, they had to wait for a text to come in get the number, call that through to police that were driving around and try and catch their prey. As each call came in, they would descend upon the phone box only to find it empty and the stalker nowhere to be found. They really needed a bit of luck just to be in the right place at the right time as the stalker could punch in the message, send it and be gone in seconds. Eventually they got lucky and they were able to apprehend a woman walking from a phone box on the beach, which had just sent a message. She had 16 pounds worth of coins in a bag. Whew. She was taken downtown and interviewed. She was 43-year-old Maria Marchese, not Spanish, rather she was born in Argentina. She came to the UK to live in 1978. She had met and had a relationship with a George Attard, 
who had a history of mental illness and had received treatment at St. Clement's Hospital in East London. One of his doctors was Jan Fokowski, who he saw for 30 minutes every two or three months. Maria accompanied him occasionally on these appointments. Wow, so there's the connection. Jan had treated her boyfriend, and although they'd never met and spoken to each other, Maria must have seen him as George went for his therapy sessions. She became infatuated with the professional Dr. Jan, who was a powerboat world champion, and he turned her on more than her mentally ill George. So Maria's flat is searched and some evidence is found. The messages and calls stopped. Debbie and Jan, after nearly a year of constant torment that had affected every part of their life and had caused them to cancel their marriage plans, could finally rest in a bit of peace. Or could they? Maria denied ever contacting Debbie, Jan or anyone in regards to the abusive texts and calls. Eventually, she's charged in relation to the texts for harassment and threats to kill. She gets bail but soon after the charges are dropped because of lack of evidence. The police could not find a definite forensic link between Maria, the calls and text. It looked like most of the calls were routed through a system in Sweden and the texts were made from public phone boxes. However guilty Maria looked, there was just no evidence to link her to any of it. Well, at least not enough to convict her. Jan and Debbie were devastated. After a year of constant harassment and threats, which was stressful in itself but also broke up their relationship, the person who caused it all was now free of all charges. And guess what? The calls and texts started up again. Fuck's sake. At this stage, Jan had stopped treating Maria's boyfriend, George Adard. This infuriated Maria, and so she called and spoke to Jan, telling him to take George back as a patient or she would cause problems. He told her to fuck off, and so Maria put in a complaint to the hospital management, which Jan had to defend. On the 31st of December 2003, Debbie's flat was broken into, but no forced entry was evidenced, and it was thought entry was gained by a spare or duplicate key. On the 21st of January, Maria is arrested and interviewed, In I think in regards to the break-in. I'm not sure on this, but I think they wanted to ask her questions. She refused to come down, so they just arrested her and took her down to the monkey house. While in this interview, she accused Jan of drugging and raping her. What the fuck? What the fucking fuck? Yes, she told police how in June 2002, she was in his consulting room and he offered her a drink. The next thing she knew was she was drowsy and then passed out. She came to with yarn on top of her. She told police she had evidence and she was able to produce a pair of panties with a cum stain on them. Police arrested Jan and took his DNA. Forensic testing of Maria's panties showed three DNA results. One for Maria. One for another person. And guess what? One for Jan. Huh? What the... What 
what the fuck? Is this is there something missing in this story? Did Yarn bang Maria and then ghost her, causing all this in the first place? Well, it gets crazier. Yarn is charged for rape, and as you can imagine, his face is plastered all over the news, and he's not allowed to work. He denies ever having met her, let alone fuck her. Still, the DNA is in her panties, and how does Yarn explain it? Yarn gets bail, but that is hardly any consolation when you have a rape charge hanging over your head, and there's very strong evidence that you're guilty. Remember the time that Yarn and Bethan were awakened by noises outside in the yard and found the rubbish tipped out everywhere? Well, fuck me, you couldn't make this up. Maria had gone through their rubbish and found a used condom containing Yarn's loving spoonful. She kept this and when Yarn refused to keep treating her boyfriend, she emptied the cum load into her panties and stored them in a shoebox. So how do you prove this? Well, the third unknown DNA sample ended up belonging to Bethan after Yarn and his defence team realised the rubbish incident must have been how Maria got his DNA in her undies. Bethan didn't start seeing Yarn until May 2003 and Maria claimed that she was raped in June 2002. So how does Yarn and Bethan's DNA get in her panties via a condom scabbed out of a bin? Fuck me drunk. For Yarn, all charges are dropped and Maria ends up being charged with harassment, making threats to kill from they were the charges they couldn't get enough evidence before and perverting the course of justice after making false rape allegations. She pleads not guilty, of course, and denies everything. Instead of keeping a trap shut and not testifying at her trial, she takes the stand. It's not a good look and she's found guilty on all counts and in January 2007 is put away for nine years and told to pay a compensation order of £9,000 each to Debbie and Yarn. There's also a no-time-limited restraining order to keep away and not contact them. Well, what a fucking crazy bitch. And you know what? When Maria Machese's name got out in the media, other couples came forward with similar stories of having been stalked and harassed by her. So... In Yarn and Debbie's case, the couple were getting along happy in their lives, doing their thing, everything looks good for the future, and then bang, someone they've never met, someone they've had no dealings with, suddenly comes into their lives stalking them, finding out every little detail about them, and then threatening them, trying to destroy their relationship. Well, in this case, the relationship did break down. But at least they survived it, unlike Shiori and countless other stalking victims. But getting a franger out of the bin and then emptying it out into her panties as a way to try to frame yarn for rape? Fucking boom fuckalunga. What are you supposed to do with them? Flush them? What? Wash them out? I don't know. So, Islanders, there are, these are two totally different stalking cases from around the world. In both cases, police initially did nothing. 
which if you've listened to other stalking cases on other podcasts or docos, you'll see that this is quite a common theme. Now, as I said before, sometimes you can't blame police for not prioritising these cases as they're usually overworked and most legislation means they can't really do much anyway. Restraining orders don't work either. In fact, they can make things worse. What we need is a different approach to allegations of stalking. Now, that means that if you fear you're being stalked, you need to document everything so you can go to police with something written down. Then, when the suspected stalker is interviewed by by police, they need to be able to point them in the direction of suitable counselling. If the stalking persists, then there needs to be a rapid response from police and the suspect remanded in custody. And again, counselling has to be mandatory. If there is a prison term, the counselling needs to be kept up for the period of incarceration. This may work, I don't know. I'm just a podcast host, not a doctor. But I'm sure if stalkers can get help to realise what the fuck they're doing is wrong, then maybe they can get over whatever infatuation they have with the victim. Doing nothing until there's an emergency services call obviously is not the right way to go. So, if any of the islanders out there are being stalked or harassed, you need to Google your local help centre and do something about it. Don't end up a statistic. And if any of the listeners out there are currently stalking someone, come on, it's not funny, stop it. And think about what you are doing. Go and get help. So, that's the end of the show. Ah, Got a bit worked up there. So now it's time to shout out for the new and lovely Patreon supporters. This week it's a big shout out to Susan JB Carey. And also a hi to Zach. Good on you, Zach. Thank you all so much for your support and thanks so much to all the present and past Patreon supporters of the island. True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free. As you know, I don't, I don't like ads. Neither do you. I don't want to deal with people selling ads either. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can be a Patreon go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and check out the levels and rewards alternatively you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash true crime island you can buy me a beer that'd be lovely i've got no beer in the fridge also you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts hoodies beach towels the fantastic tote bags but my favorite are the mugs of rage all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com Don't buy the black mugs, please. I've got to sort that out. They're, they're shit. Just get a white mug. They're lovely. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers and beer koozies. You have to contact me directly for them. That can be done by emailing me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com and that is also the best way to contact me personally anything else such as case requests or just to say boom fuckalunga now you don't have to spend money to support the island you can also rate and review and tell your friends family and workmates about the island and if they don't know how to tune in show them 
Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. We've got some lovely mods there. They'll sort you out. Don't forget, Australian Podcast Awards, I desperately need your vote. We're quite a few hundred. We're going to need a thousand or so votes this year, I reckon. But there's a couple of podcasts out there that are just that far in front. So I need everybody. I just ask you, please spend a couple of minutes, register AustralianPodcastAwards.com. Vote for True Crime Island. You can vote for uh, Bloody Murder as well because you get 10 votes. You can vote for the Mall Podcast. Vote for Good Nightmare. Hi, Sarah. And vote for Evidence Locker Podcast. They're my group of group of podcast mates that you can vote for. We'll hopefully all get together on the night. So that's about it for the show. So, as usual, lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom bagalunga. <laughs>